Welcome to the Capital Spotlight, where we interview institutional capital allocators to learn more about their strategies, sponsor and investment criteria, due diligence process, and asset management practices. I'm your host, Rob Beardsley, and today we're having a discussion with Ian Ippolito with the Real Estate Crowdfunding Review. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rob. I appreciate it. And so this is a little unique because you yourself aren't a uh, fund or private equity firm or anything like that, uh, but you do take a very sophisticated approach to your asset allocation, your due diligence, and you've been really helpful for other people uh, in kind of leading the way and creating a community. So talk a little bit about that. Great. Well, I appreciate that. So, I mean, maybe uh, for your listeners, I guess I'll just explain that basically, you know, I used to be a serial entrepreneur and I had a very good exit. And then after that, I became a full-time investor. But what happened was I didn't want to just follow the traditional strategy of, you know, put X percent in, in stocks and X percent in bonds, really wanted to be in these alternative investments, which I thought could be good diversification. And at the time, real estate crowdfunding had just kind of come out. So it was this interesting thing where you could, before you couldn't do this, but you know, with these new laws, you were able to actually invest in all these real estate syndications and things very easily without having to know someone, you know, to kind of refer you to it. So it was an exciting time, but there wasn't much information about it out there. So I basically just did a whole bunch of research on my own to try to figure out what I wanted to invest in. And then the word kind of got out that, hey, Ian has this huge list and all these people that he interviewed and all the, you know, and, you know, ask him for it. And um, that was fine at first, but after a while, I got a little bit tired of, uh, you know, emailing this list out to people. So I said, you know what, I'm just going to put it on this website. And so this website became this thing called the Real Estate Crowdfunding Review. And so now, you know, it gets, you know, probably about 12,000 investors coming in every month. So it kind of, it grew, it, it grew really hugely. But um, I guess the other part is what you're talking about there is, so there was the public website, but that kind of attracted an audience, kind of like what you talked about, which is where I kind of write about things and my opinions of things. And I realized, you know what, the, the website is great, but as an investor, what I really want, so I want to be able to source new deals. I want to source new deals. I want a place to be able to discuss these deals with People, maybe some of them know more than I do about different areas. So together we can do really great due diligence on these deals. And then a lot of times by putting our money together, a sponsor, it's, it's worth more to a sponsor to have a big bunch of money rather than just my little amount of money. So a lot of times they're willing to accept me or maybe, you know, individually they may not, but together in a big group they would, or they may even be able to give me a discount because, you know, I'm providing value to them, you know, as part of this club. So basically, I started the Investor Club, and uh, that has uh, you know grown now too. It's over thirty five hundred investors, five point six billion in investable assets, and it was created to do those three things. That's perfect, and that really is riding the trend, just like crowdfunding is of of the crowd, right? And uh, like Uber is leveraging uh, the marginal assets and things like that. And similarly, in the, in the previous economy, people trusted experts, they trusted individuals. And I think there's a transition now to trusting the crowd and that Yelp reviews and different things like that. And I think that's riding that trend very well. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's exactly it. Because I don't think any one person can know enough to do total due diligence on these deals. And, you know, even, even just in real estate, there's so many different sub asset classes, you know, someone could know multifamily really well, but do they really understand mobile home parks, or do they understand self-storage, storage, or, you know, and then you go beyond real estate, which is where it kind of started into these other asset classes like litigation, finance, and life settlements. There's just, there's just so much. And so the crowd is really, really useful for that. 
Okay, great. So, so you bring up a couple different um, asset classes and things like that. So I want to dive right into kind of your, your strategy and, you know, you say it many times, I'm a conservative investor. That's your big disclaimer, right? <laughs> and so in many ways, you've been preparing for a potential downturn. And, yeah. uh, you know, so the question is, what are you doing now? Are you turning aggressive? Um, well, yeah, kind of, but not yet. So, um, yeah, you're exactly right. I've been very conservative for a long time now. And, you know, it, it's been it's been difficult because you see, it's like I'm driving around on the road going very slowly. You know, my little conservative investments, hardly making any money. And I see all these people going in cars, zooming by me, zoom, zoom, zoom. You know, they've got, they're, they're flooring it. And they look like they're doing really well. But I did feel that it was a chance that there could be a downturn. I didn't know when. I certainly couldn't have predicted what happened for sure. But I just felt that it was going to happen. And so, yeah, so I was, I was being very conservative, low leverage, um, looking for high skin in the game, really established sponsors, things like that. Um, so, you know, now the downturn has come. It's here. Those are the kind of things I want to have already been invested in at this point. What's interesting is, so then it's like, what do I do going forward? So what's interesting is that like, okay, stock market, for example, the results have been dramatic, like, right, boom, right? You know, huge drop. But in the private markets, not really so much. They move a lot slower. Um, and so like, for example, right now in real estate. So you've got, it takes a while for the results, for the, for the rent, rent, uh, rents to come in. You know, what happened in March? What happened in April? Did it go down as much as we think it did? Did it not? And so, so people that are selling right now are, are not willing to come down in price because they're like, well, maybe it's not going to be so bad. And maybe in a month or two, it'll be fine. And people who are buying are like, well, yeah, maybe, but then maybe not. I don't know if I want to pay the, the pre-COVID-19 price today. So, so what's happened is kind of like the volume has just gone way down, but the prices have not changed. So, so for me right now, now is not the time. Um, I am just, I'm going to wait for it to play out one way or the other. Either everything's going to end up being great, we get a fast recovery, in which case prices stay high, everyone's in great shape, and we just continue on. Um, or it's the opposite situation where uh, it's going to be a longer recovery. Now, in, in that case, then people that have cash probably will have the opportunities to pick up some distressed discounts. And, you know, depending on how severe, no one wants to see a severe downturn. Everyone wants to see, you know, a, a great economy. But if it does, you know, if that does happen historically, you know, in, in, the, in the Great Recession, in every severe downturn, there can be once in a once in a generation, at least once in a decade opportunities, you know, for an investor that's patient and has cash. So um, right now I'm in that camp right now. I'm just, I'm waiting to see what happens. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously when you're driving slowly on the highway while people are passing you by, it's because at some point in time you want to be prepared and in a position to turn aggressive when appropriate. Right. Yes. Yes, exactly. So more specifically, you mentioned there might be some once in a decade, once in a generation. Are you, do you have any specific strategies in mind as to how you would turn aggressive? For example, starting to buy, you could call broken assets with bridge loans or buying distressed debt. What, what kind of strategies? I mean, it's going to depend on, on what we see. So at this point, they're not quite there yet. Uh, there is definitely some of the debt is starting to get distressed. Um, and, and depending on the asset class, like, um, if you look at hotels, for example, hotels are just hammered already. 
Um, so the debt on those is starting to look a little distressed. The, the equity is looking a little bit distressed. Um, but the further you go down the chain kind of to more essentials, you know, the less distressed it is at this point. So, you know, so I, at this point, I am keeping my eyes open. Um, I, I recently invested into a, into a distressed debt fund, um, but they are not deploying right away either. Their, their, their strategy is to be patient. Um, and there's kind of like a couple ways to go at it. Like, like, you know, that particular fund that I'm looking at, they're looking for potentially healthy businesses that look good, you know, and they're looking for mispricing. You know, there's kind of like two ways to play it. You can say, hey, I think this is like a valuable asset, but just because of all the panic and fear, the price is way down here when it's really worth this, I'm going to buy that. The other way is to go, I'm going to go for a turnaround. Um, I know this asset is really probably worth down that, but I can turn it around. I have special knowledge or the person I'm hiring. So there's definitely two levels of risk. This one here is a lot less risky than that. I think there'll be opportunities for both, but at this point, it's hard to say. Right. We're definitely, we're just weeks into, yes, into the yes. new cycle. It's, so uh, it's too early. Um, so some other interesting things are a couple things about this cycle potentially being different. We have a lot lower leverage across the board. Um, you know, banks are more um, contained and, and the shadow bank system has offered more leverage, but it's been on the margin. So in terms of that being a potential difference in today's downturn, um, and on top of it, you've said in some of your articles that real estate values have actually stayed flat, maybe even gone up in half of recessions. So why is that? And, and what could be a scenario that you could potentially see playing out today as in a scenario where real estate values don't go down? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. So if you look back at the last six recessions, it's really strange. You expect, oh, prices must have gone down every recession. Well, you know, vacancies have gone up rents have gone down. So that means the income has gone down, but the actual price of real estate in three of the last six recessions went up. And so what it is, is that pricing is not tied exactly to our business cycle where it goes up and down, but it's tied to the desirability. It's tied to global things. It's like the desirability of being in real estate versus other things. So for example, um, if real estate is just going down just a little bit, say real estate, you know, you lose your income by about like 5% or something that, that might've been, you know, the last recession actually wasn't that bad. in in a lot of asset classes, it was bad because like you said, people were over leveraged. And so, and maybe the banks weren't lending. So then you obviously you can lose everything, but a lot of times the underlying assets were not really doing that bad. So, so globally, when people are thinking, where am I going to put my money? Um, wow. U S real estate you know, maybe it's down a couple percentage points versus down 40% or 50% if I put it in the stock market or, you know, whatever it is. So, so it really is just a matter of kind of looking in comparison. I do think it kind of depends on what happens. It depends on the scenarios. But I think in a scenario where, let's say, I mean, I, I kind of talked about it where like there's like maybe almost four different possible scenarios where it's kind of like a quick, very quick recovery, kind of like a medium term recovery. And then like a very long-term recovery, a couple scenarios there, or one where like it's ridiculously long, where maybe we get like multiple waves of the virus and we just can't, you know, get rid of it. You know, if we're way on that end, you know, real estate is going to have a difficult time because anything that's tied to the economy is um, many, many asset classes, not just real estate. But if we're kind of more on this side where, you know, you know, it, it's like real estate can take more of a pounding than some of the other ones because it's not directly tied in a lot of ways. The pricing is not tied. 
So I feel if it's kind of one of these lesser lengths of recoveries, the smaller lengths, that's where real estate can do really good. And on top of that, we've seen uh, interest rates go down. And yes. initially, we just saw index rates go down, meaning the 10-year treasury plummeted, but spreads gapped out and the credit markets were in disarray. So then interest rates are actually higher initially, but now that's all calmed down and, and, and we're seeing interest rates at least 50 bips uh, cheaper, which would inflate prices. Um, and on top, but however, we've seen the Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac holdback reserves, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with, but that crushes it, uh, the returns of a deal if you have to hold back 10%. Hold back and uh, so, so we're seeing, before we even address the fundamental shift in rents, vacancy, and things like that, just the, the shift in the change in financing has really shifted values down 10%, uh, just given the holdback, even though interest rates are lower. So it's, it's really interesting, like your point earlier, uh, buyers and sellers just cannot connect right now, just for that, that disconnect alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, it's, it's definitely uh, very interesting. And how does it all play out? And uh, so difficult to say. Well, I'll, I'll add one more little tidbit there. So with the interest rates, what's interesting is, um, and it, it really is the spread like you're talking about, which is the profitability. Interest rates going down is not enough on its own. You want to see that spread. But what's interesting is even historically that spread, when it gets wider or, or narrower, hasn't necessarily always corresponded with prices going up or down. So it, it's, it's very difficult to predict in advance. Absolutely. So let's take a look here. What else do we have? Um, so just a, a quick take from you. Obviously, default risk is on your mind a lot. Yes. Um, yes. Right. So, and, and that's one of the big reasons, if not the biggest reason for 65% leverage rather than 75% leverage, right? So what's your view or how would you evaluate a deal which was proposing a soft preferred equity where there isn't any default remedies if you can't meet the subordinate leverage slice of the pref, mm-hmm, right? It simply mm-hmm. would accrue. I mean, so there you don't really have as much default risk because they can't kick you out of the deal or take over for, you know, force you to sell. But how would you look at a deal there? Because you've got higher leverage, but you don't have the default risk. Right. Well, if I understand uh, kind of the scenario you're talking about, like in a plain Jane deal, you're going to have some equity portion of the stack and then you're going to have debt. And uh, I think you're talking about a preferred equity situation, which is kind of in between where really first priority is that debt. If anything goes wrong, they have the, the best protection. Depending on how much debt there is, then if there's still money. So if, if it all blows up, you know, maybe I don't know what percent, say 65 percent debt, they're covered. Then you've got, you know, your preferred equity maybe next. And maybe they're taking the first X percent of whatever the income is. Maybe it's 8 percent or, you know, whatever. So is that the kind of situation you're referring to? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, okay. So here's the thing for me. Again, this is not the way everyone goes. Um, uh, It it goes back to my really conservative nature. Um, I like simple deals because in simple deals, if, if it's a really good real estate purchased at a good price, you can usually structure it in a way where it's simple. You don't have to add on extra stuff. Um, sometimes when a deal doesn't quite pencil out because maybe it wasn't purchased at such a, such a great rate, you've got to start adding on extra things. Maybe you add on you know, a preferred piece. All of a sudden, it makes the numbers look a lot better. But now these equity investors are, are behind this preferred, so they're taking on more risk. And in a way, the preferred maybe is getting kind of pseudo debt returns, but not quite the same return as, as debt. 
you know, so risk is kind of getting moved around just in general. That's not something that I, I prefer. So um, doesn't mean the deal's bad and doesn't mean that it would do badly or anything like that. It may do perfectly fine. But my, my first reaction is like, mm, no, I, I want to see something that is like just plain Jane, um, especially at this stage of this cycle where now we're, you know, going downhill. I, I will have a very different attitude once we're downhill, we've stabilized and things are starting to look back up. And you talked about hitting the gas. That, that'll be another time, I think, to, to hit the gas in another way where I'll feel more comfortable going with these sponsors that have less experience. I'll feel more comfortable taking on more leverage and things like that. That's an interesting approach, definitely. I think, so basically, you would entertain max leverage in various forms, whether it be just from a higher senior or from a, some subordinate leverage when you feel it is appropriate. And going back to your earlier point, I think that does make a lot of sense where Typically, you get more creative when it needs to be more creative, right? Yes, yes. And uh, I think it kind of is in line with if you start seeing that, if you see a really shiny marketing pitch deck, you know, there's just kind of those small red flags that it, something is a, is a little off. So um, that definitely makes sense. I want to actually go back to the, the cycle discussion. We're having some, some discussions about cycles, and I think something that's very common is as the cycle progresses, obviously yields get lower, prices get tighter, and people start uh, to push out into worse quality assets and worse markets because they're being they're they're yield chasing, right? Yeah. And I, I would I'm gonna guess that you probably do the exact opposite, which as the cycle progresses, you swim in the opposite direction and are looking for higher quality sponsors, higher quality assets, lower returns. Uh, because as the cycle progresses, you have lower returns on an absolute basis, mm-hmm. and then you're seeking lower returns on a relative basis to the other options. Yes, yeah, that's exactly right. So that's why it really does feel like I'm just going super slow versus everyone else, because I've got kind of two breaks on, as you've described, which is right. the natural breaking of the economy as a whole, and then I'm going even more low risk than that, just because I'm afraid of when it turns, which is generally the most dangerous part. So... Yeah, and I, and I read and study a lot about cycles, Howard Marks and things like that. And I think that's his, one of his options that he proposes to you in his six ways to invest. Like that's one of the options. As returns are getting lower, you even seek lower returns. Yeah, um, so I think I'm on board with that. But then on the other side of the cycle, mm-hmm. do you now buy the worst? Like is now the time to buy the worst quality assets because they are the ones taking the deeper discounts? Yes. I mean, well, here's the thing about, at least on real estate, it's like, just like some people will say like every deal is local. So it's like, you know, I don't care what's happened on the U S level, what's happening in this particular economy. I think that's very true on real estate too, as well. Like it's hard to generalize and say, Oh, you need to go and buy every distressed asset or you should never touch a distressed asset. I think it depends on the situation. I think you have to look at it very carefully and say, well, this asset is in really bad shape because of X, Y, and Z, but I think that can be turned around versus this one is in bad shape because X, Y, and Z, and I, I don't see that turning around. So, um, so I, I think it, it really just depends on the individual situation. So I don't feel comfortable saying, you know, yeah, it should always go this way, always go that way. But I think you're absolutely right that there, there are opportunities for this. And if you're gonna take a chance, probably, you know, probably the time when the prices are the lowest or when you want to do it. Having said that, no one wants to grab the falling knife. 
No one wants to say, oh yeah, you know, that, well, that's so cheap, that's great. And then, you know, it just keeps going. So um, for me as the conservative investor, I'm not hitting the gas now while things are still going down. Now, if you want to maximize your return, if you want to be more aggressive, you can try to time it. You can say, you know what, I think, I, I think we're right about there. We're, this is the time to buy because if you can buy right then, you're in great shape. I'm actually going to wait a little bit. I'm gonna, the nice thing about real estate, it's not like the stock market. It's the cycles are slower. As we've seen here on the downturn, the downturn is slower. Everything is slower. So I'm going to wait until things look pretty good. And actually, I'll wait till they're kind of going up a little bit. And then I can feel more comfortable taking on those kind of risks. So that's my personal strategy. It, it's not going to maximize my returns. But, uh, you know, that's what, that's, that it, it fits in with my risk profile. Right. Yeah. So assuming we do hit that bottom at some point and whatever that bottom looks like but let's generalize and say that a core class a asset in a primary market something like austin you know downtown office or just you know prime mm -hmm. luxury multifamily, and mm -hmm. let's say the pricing on that is only down maybe five or ten percent oh, which okay, is still yeah. which is still a still decent discount for such mm -hmm. a high quality asset right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. would you gravitate towards that or potentially the secondary market, let's say this, even staying in Austin, but just the suburbs and it's a garden style multifamily rather than the high rise or the, the, the mid rise. And it's maybe 70% occupied rather than being 95% lease. So, but that I assume the one in the suburbs is down 20% in price. Mm -hmm. so, roughly speaking, which one, obviously with every deal is specific, but which one at that bottom becomes more attractive to you? I mean, that, it is difficult to just say generically because, okay. So on one hand, so we're talking about one hand, is it better to be in class A or class B? And what's really kind of crazy is that even though it's called class A, you'd think that means it should have performed best. You can look at different recessions and they perform differently. There's been, there's been some recessions where class A has been hammered. Um, uh, the, there was a recession way back in the 1970s called, they called it the Great Apartment Recession, where class A did very badly. Um, last recession, you know, class A did pretty good. Um, but there's an argument, I think, and you know, one of the problems that we've seen in this cycle, so we started this cycle off where class A was just killing it, doing really great. You've got class B doing, you know, the traditional not quite as good and class C, you know, not less than that. But then what happened is the price of construction started getting higher and higher. So, and so now class A started doing like this. And then there was a point, maybe about a, two years ago, where the B and the A crossed. And now all of a sudden B is like doing better than A in the middle of an expansion. So, um, so for me, that was a really important like turning point there where the cost of construction got so high that B outperformed A. So I am, I, I look at A more uh, pessimistically or, or more, more closely now. So I'd want to see that deal in Austin, you know, and maybe it looks good. I, I, I'd want to see what, what's, what's the possibility of things being built around it, the competition, what are they looking at, you know? versus this uh, B, this garden style one, you know, maybe it has some advantages over it. I don't know. It would, a lot of it would just depend on, you know, the circumstances though. Got to look at the competition, you know, so much there. But I'll add something else that adds even another wrinkle to things because, okay, the, the traditional story then after that cross was like, oh, B is the place to be. And maybe even like B minus or C because, you know, if there's a downturn, you know, people at the A level, you know, they'll just move down to B and people at B will just move down to C. 
But what we're seeing now in this one, at least so far, is that the people with the jobs that are done remotely the best are probably an A. A is probably the best. And uh, B is somewhat, and C is not good at all. So, um, you know, all bets are kind of off. And uh, that's another reason why I think the best is to wait and see. I think in another month or two, we're going to have a lot more information. We're going to kind of see how these things have played out differently than past recessions. And investors will be able to make some good decisions on, you know, what's the best strategy going forward. So you set me up really well uh, talking about demographic trends and supply. So just to reiterate what you said, uh, there's that typical, which I would call it a fallacy, which is that C is recession resistant because yes. people always need a place to live. But if you look at the data, which of course you have, C performs pretty poorly in many circumstances, in many recessions, yes. right? Yes. And in this situation, we have a very um, straightforward understanding of why that would be the case with remote workers, white collar jobs being more easily able to be withstood what's happening today. Uh, but that typ that's typical of all recessions, right? Yes. Uh, just because those are the, the last people to get uh, hired first to get fired. So I would call that a fallacy. And then, so another fallacy is this, this demographic trend that population is growing and jobs are growing. And, and I know you've, in one of your articles, you talked about how this myth usually doesn't actually end up in higher NOI because of new supply. So I want you to talk a little bit about that. And then we'll talk about what you're looking at for supply risk. Okay. Yeah. So basically that's kind of like, these are things in pitch decks that you see all the time and they're kind of just selling you on one side of the story. So you've got supply and demand, which are going to drive your return, but they will try to sell you on one side. So in, you know, in that example, they're talking about demand. Um, an example would be demographics. Uh, you see that a lot, like in senior housing, for example, where they're like, Oh my gosh, look at all the people that are going to be retiring, all these baby boomers that are gonna be moving into this right now. This is like, it's gold. There's no way you can go wrong with all this demographics. What they don't tell you is on the other side, everyone else sees the exact same thing going on. And so they're building, 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 building. So now it becomes very, very difficult. And that's even before COVID-19, you know, where there's even much more difficulty with some of these senior housing and even just, you know, running these places. So it's really important that you have to look at both sides of the equation. And, and again, I think it comes down to like, these, these high level stories are great that we kind of tell ourselves to kind of like focus on it, but you have to go and look at the details, I think of each individual property. And so when you go in under the property and look and say, uh, you can do a study and you can say, well, who are the competitors nearby? Oh, wow. There's like three of them that just popped up. Uh, or the same thing is in self storage. Self storage has done really good in past recessions, but if you've got someone building one right next door to you, you're probably in trouble at least for the next couple of months while they ramp up and they're going to be lowering rents and, you know, and it, and it could be a killer. So it all comes down to, again, to, I think, local investigation of the, the specific, you know, deal, make sure it really does live up to the story that is supposedly that's being sold. Right. And even without factoring in supply risk on that, it, on that story, you've got, it's in the price. It's, it, it's not great if you're paying a forecap for the opportunity to watch your population boom and all this stuff. <laughs> Maybe in some circumstances it could be, but uh, that, you know, that itself is, is a challenge. So are there any, uh, I think it's really hard to look around the U S and find a market that isn't in oversupply. 
in terms of, well, I'm, I'm coming from the multifamily side of oh, things. Oh, multifamily, okay, gotcha. But yeah. even, even office, there's a lot. And, and like you said, self-storage is very easy to build. And so that has no real moat to supply for the most yes. part. Yes. So, uh, I mean, do you have any specific markets that you think are well insulated from supply or that you, you foresee will perform well? Well, there are some. Um, and again, this is kind of all pre-COVID-19, which could definitely change everything. You know, I can see a lot of ways it could, but pre-COVID-19, you know, there's definitely some markets for example, like in Portland, for example, where they have implemented certain forms of rent control, which inadvertently, so the idea with rent control is, you know, rents are too high, let's set a maximum price that's going to, you know, hopefully bring the price down. Um, a lot of people believe that that's not really the way to address it, and you need to address the supply issue. But what ends up happening usually is by constraining the amount of building, it actually, you know, increases the rents. So. What's happened, for example, in, in Portland, uh, they, they, they had a new rule that uh, went to effect, I think it may have already been in effect now, but basically the construction pipeline was up here and all of a sudden the new rule said, well, you've got to build a certain number of affordable units. And people were like, well, that's, that's not affordable. I can't do that. I'm just not gonna build. All of a sudden construction went down here. Well, when it's down here now, that existing class A property, that's looking really good because you know, no one's gonna be, or very few people are gonna be competing against it. So there are markets like that where there's a lot of regulations and rules that kind of constrain supply. So you can kind of go that route if you're looking for supply constraints. Um, another, the other strategy is if, if you're concerned about supply, you might look for the opposite where they're actually like building like crazy, but they're also trying to encourage it. Like you can look for these zones where, uh, you know, they have like a plan. We want, we want to add, you know, these communities, we want to add this and add that. Um, and we're putting in the infrastructure for this. So it's kind of the opposite strategy where the, the supply is not constrained at all. They're encouraging supply, but they're also trying to build up the demand. They're bringing in workers. They're expected to bring in all this other stuff. There's kind of like two ways that you can, you can go about that. That's kind of how I had been looking at it, you know, before COVID-19 had hit. But, you know, now, you know, how is that going to affect things? We've got We've got some states where they actually said construction is fine. You can, it's an essential activity. You can continue building. We've got some where they said, no, you cannot build. You cannot even build. You know, it's, not, it's not essential. So that shut down construction. And then how does that play out depending on if this is the final wave or if we have other waves of the virus and if we have to lock back down? It's, uh, it's difficult to say. Yeah, and, and generally speaking, in recessions, we see less new starts in construction. Yes. So that'll help existing assets perform. And I think supply is a greater risk for Class A, right? The closer you are Absolutely. to competing against it, that is mm -hmm. where it's the riskiest. So I would say uh, I, I would be wary in investing uh, in Class A in, in a market like pretty much everywhere, <laughs> Austin, Denver, I mean, there's all these markets that have 3% of existing inventory in, in new supply coming online. Yes. And uh, so like Portland, I guess that's a very interesting idea. Um, so, I, so I'd be more comfortable in the B class where there is that new supply because the new supply is indicative yes. of growth, but the B is probably a little insulated from the A. Yes, 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 exactly. Yeah, a uh, lot of good opportunities in B, again, all pre-COVID. Uh, I'll add some other weird stuff though that's been going on in B which is 
the other the problem with one problem with B is you're exactly right. I think it has all the advantages because you don't have to worry about supply. But again, it's become that same dynamic where other people are recognizing this advantage. So you have all these private equity firms raising a ton of money. They've got a bunch of cash. A lot of it is dry powder right now. And so, you know, will we see the bees be able to come down low enough in this downturn where, you know, or, or are they just going to go crazy? You know, I, I'm hoping there's, there'll be more opportunities than there will be dry powder, but we'll see. I'm worried about that too. I'm worried that there's not going to be the distress that we're all waiting for. And then it's just, we just basically sat around for six months hoping for prices to come down and they never did. Yes. It's definitely a risk. So I've got a kind of a tongue in cheek question for you, but a big one is, um, you know, full cycle sponsors or, or full cycle experience cycle tested. Um, and, you know, assuming we go through this cycle, there's going to be a lot of sponsors who have started buying deals in the last few years and then they're through this cycle. Yes. So how are you going to look at that? And are you going to change your criteria to now you're looking for two cycle experience or you know, what's the new thing? <laughs> well, you know, I, I, it's going to depend on how bad this recession is. So let's say that if this recession is pretty mild, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to say for an experienced one, I want to. On the other hand, if this one is, is at least a you know medium to difficult intensity, then I think it'll be a good test, and it, it'll it'll be able to show you know which ones were over leveraged, which ones weren't, which ones got a little bit too aggressive with their strategies, and which one didn't. And you know I would definitely be fine with using that as a as a criteria. So it'll depend. Very cool. So, what recommendations do you have for sponsors wanting to raise more capital? Mm, okay, so. You know, I don't know if this is going to be considered, you know, helpful advice. I can tell you what people are thinking right now. Um, you know, the advice I would have given, you know, we, a month or two ago would be very different than, you know, something that's practical and useful right now. Well, what I'm seeing right now from investors, you've got kind of like a couple different types. So you've got the kind of like steady as she goes, just going to keep investing just the way that they were. They think things are going to come back pretty quickly maybe about a third. You've got maybe about a third that are just like so confused and so scared. They're just like, I'm not gonna, I'm not doing anything right now. Um, this is just too scary. And then you've got like about another third, I think that are like, well, you know what? I, I would like to take advantage of this situation. And can you explain something there? So, and again, maybe it's too early. So I'm not sure how helpful this is, but at some point I think it will be helpful. It's like the, the syndicators and the sponsors that can provide the deals for that middle group where they can say, look, we negotiated a great deal on this pre COVID-19. It was this. And now here we are, you know, month and a half later, this is the price that we're getting. And this is why we feel that we can hit this pro forma because of this, 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 and this, and, you know, and look at these trends, they're turning around, you know, Someone that can present that sort of thing, I think can have very uh, good success here, you know, not too long from now either, so. And along these lines of, you know, helping sponsors raise capital, what are things aside from actually having the right deal and, and having the right strategy, uh, what other things can sponsors do to better appeal to investors? So, for example, certain types of reporting or, or just generally better um, reporting? Mm -hmm. Oh, well, you know, yes. And, and I think it depends on the type of investor that uh, you're targeting. If you, you know, there's, there's definitely the kind of like, uh, we'll call them novices or, you know, they, they don't, they're not really going to look at things too closely. And for them, the reporting is not really going to matter. But 
Yes, if you have a sophisticated investor, the reporting matters. They'll want to see examples of that. But even the pitch deck really matters to this type of investor. I mean, if they don't see a pro forma in there and they're like, oh, well, you have to, if it says, well, you know, it's available upon request to certain people and, you know, they're just going to walk away. And, uh, you know, so I think it's important to be as transparent as you can. You know, obviously there's some things that you can't and you're going to have to protect, but, you know, provide the transparency, provide at least the most important details in the pitch deck to show that you are catering to a sophisticated audience versus these people. And I think that goes a long way. Definitely makes sense. Okay, this is an interesting topic. So not that many people out there are really talking about after tax returns or tax implications. Mm -hmm. You've, you know, have, a, have some articles and some strategies about that. And I think it, it really is very relevant. Unless you're a tax exempt entity investing, it really makes sense to look at what your returns are after everything. Yes. Um, to guide your strategy. So can you talk a little bit more about your allocation strategy in terms of after-tax returns? Yeah, so uh, investing in real estate, some people don't realize, but it's actually really one of the strengths if you do it well, that there's, a, so there's great tax benefits. So there's kind of like two parts to it. And to really do it well, you got to kind of hit both parts. Most people only hit one. So the idea is that when you invest in real estate, there's usually depreciation, as you know. Uh, but I don't know if the, if the listeners are familiar with it. So depending on what you're investing in, that depreciation may shield your return anywhere from maybe 40% of what you're getting to maybe 100% or even more. There, there are, I call them the super shielders. You, you can accelerate depreciation in a way where you're actually showing a tax loss in the early years where you're actually making income. This is an incredible benefit. Um, but... The thing is this has to be paid back normally. So basically what happens is maybe in year one, you've accelerated your depreciation. Say you, 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 you invested it and you made, as an example, $100 and you got $100 of income. And maybe in your tax return, it shows minus 400. That's, a, that's an awesome super shielder right there. So you basically have $300 worth of deductions that you can use to shield and offset other things. But you know, as, as it goes on, your depreciation starts to wear off. And eventually in year seven or wherever it is, something happens called depreciation recapture. And then what happens is you pay back what that was normally. Now, what's awesome about real estate is that it has this thing called the 1031 exchange. And there's a few other asset classes that have it. But the idea here is that if you exchange into similar type property, that uh, recapture that you had to do, you no longer have to do, it's deferred. It's deferred until you sell this one. But what people realized is that you can just do this forever. You basically just defer it, you defer it, you defer it. And then actually when you, when you pass away, you, you give this to your estate and they inherit it on a stepped up basis, they're not paying it either. So this strategy is called defer, defer and die. And so what, it's a way to, you, you do not pay taxes and it's all perfectly legal. It's all allowed in, in real estate. It's, it's much easier to do if you own property yourself because you can kind of structure it as a 1031 exchange. As a passive investor, it's a lot more difficult. You have to work a lot harder to find the sponsors that are going to allow you to do something like this. But uh, there are a couple out there. Uh, so, you know, so I look at that. So I think it is important to look at the after-tax returns, something that maybe before tax is not that great of a return. Uh, when you compare it to something else that is a higher return but is taxed at higher, it may actually end up better. And many times it does. So, so th that's an important thing to look at. Absolutely. And 
you brought up depreciation in, in all real estate, but let's specifically dive into real estate partnerships or syndications. I'm sure it's something that you do due diligence on and find out, uh, you ask the sponsor that you're investing with, how are you treating the depreciation? Are you electing for bonus depreciation? And how much of the depreciation are you sharing or keeping for yourself? So, yes, yes. I mean, and from my point of view, you know, I'm putting in the money. <laughs> so I should be getting whatever percent uh, I'm putting in, I should be getting that percent of the depreciation. But you're right, not every sponsor agrees and everyone does it differently. And, and even if they do agree with you, you know, different asset classes kind of, uh, um, kind of tend to have different amounts of shielding. If, you, if you're buying that kind of core property that you were talking about before, and maybe you're holding it for like 20 years, uh, that the, the depreciation shielding is not going to be that great because, because it's going to run out sooner. So it really depends on the asset class. Definitely. And like you said, it's actually interesting to see that a lot of syndications are put together in such a way that a, a disproportionate amount is going to the sponsor, which mm -hmm. as a sponsor myself, we love that. And, and we yes. are looking for ways to, to do that. But I totally understand the other side. And we've done deals that are the exact opposite where, you know, the GP only owns 0.01% of oh, the wow. yes. entity. And so mm -hmm. really all the, you know, economics and of course the depreciation flow to the investors and um, just to go a little uh, to nerd out a little bit I don't know if you know this but it's really interesting because I'm not sure if sponsors really know uh, that what they're doing when they agree for, to this arrangement because uh, if you're following the tax code uh, in order to be able to get a disproportionate amount of depreciation you will effectively have a, a negative capital account in your basis you have a negative basis in the investment yes. uh -huh. and in order to do that you have to elect for a deficit deficit restoration order mm, which means okay. if the syndication or the sponsor ends up selling the property at a loss they would have to they would end up with a, a negative capital account and they'd have to restore it and it actually fund money into the partnership to restore that negative capital account and that is a um that is something wow. you have to agree to if you want to get that disproportionate benefit. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I wonder how many do realize really what they're, what they're signing up for. Very interesting. Yeah. And so just the other day I, I said yes to that. So I took the bet on that. Um, <laughs> but you got, you should at least know. Lucky what investors. For. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so yeah, that's, that's all the questions I have. Um, great discussion. Really appreciate the, all the topics we covered. Um, definitely a good time. Yeah, same here, Rob. Definitely appreciate it. Great to be able to talk to you and to your audience. Yeah, thanks. And um, if, if there's anything you want to let anybody know listening to check out your website or, or join your group. Yeah, um, basically go to the realestatecrowdfundingreview.com slash club. Has all the information on joining the club and you can also check out the website. All right. Thanks. All right. Have a good one.